Chapter 16 Miracles of the New Creation Beware, for fiends in triumph laugh, or him who learns the truth by half. Beware, for God will not endure, for men to make their hope more pure than his good promise, or require another than the five-stringed lyre, which he has vowed again to the hands, devout of him who understands, to tune it justly here. Patmore, The Victories of Love In the earliest days of Christianity, an apostle was first and foremost a man who claimed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Only a few days after the crucifixion, when two candidates were nominated for the vacancy created by the treachery of Judas, their qualification was that they had known Jesus personally, both before and after his death, and could offer first-hand evidence of the resurrection in addressing the outer world. A few days later, St. Peter, preaching the first Christian sermon, makes the same claim. God raised Jesus, of which we all, we Christians, are witnesses. Acts 2.32 In the first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul bases his claim to apostleship on the same ground. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? As this qualification suggests, to preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection. Thus people who had heard only fragments of St. Paul's teaching at Athens got the impression that he was talking about two new gods, Jesus and Anastasis, that is, resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or good news which the Christians brought. What we call the gospels, the narratives of our Lord's life and death, were composed later for the benefit of those who had already accepted the gospel. They were in no sense the basis of Christianity. They were written for those already converted. The miracle of the resurrection and the theology of that miracle comes first. The biography comes later as a comment on it. Nothing could be more unhistorical than to pick out selected sayings of Christ from the Gospels and to regard those as the datum and the rest of the New Testament as a construction upon it. The first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say they have seen the resurrection. If they had died without making anyone else believe this Gospel, no Gospels would ever have been written. It is very important to be clear about what these people meant. When modern writers talk of the resurrection, they usually mean one particular moment, the discovery of the empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus a few yards away from it. The story of that moment is what Christian apologists now chiefly try to support, and skeptics chiefly try to impugn. But this almost exclusive concentration on the first five minutes or so of the resurrection would have astonished the earliest Christian teachers. In claiming to have seen the resurrection, they were not necessarily claiming to have seen that. Some of them had, some of them had not. It had no more importance than any of the other appearances of the risen Jesus, apart from the poetic and dramatic importance which the beginning of things must always have. What they were claiming was that they had all, at one time or another, met Jesus during the six or seven weeks that followed his death. Sometimes they seemed to have been alone when they did so, but on one occasion twelve of them saw him together, and on another occasion about five hundred of them. St. Paul says that the majority of the five hundred were still alive when he wrote the first letter to the Corinthians, that is, in about 55 AD. The resurrection to which they bore witness was, in fact, not the action of rising from the dead, but the state of having risen a state, as they held, attested by intermittent meetings during a limited period, except for the special and in some ways different meeting vouchsafed to St. Paul. This termination of the period is important, for, as we shall see, there is no possibility of isolating the doctrine of the resurrection from that of the ascension. The next point to notice is that the resurrection was not regarded simply or chiefly as evidence for the immortality of the soul. It is, of course, often so regarded today. I have heard a man maintain that the importance of the resurrection is that it proves survival. Such a view cannot at any point be reconciled with the language of the New Testament. On such a view, Christ would simply have done what all men do when they die. 
The only novelty would have been that, in his case, we were allowed to see it happening. But there is not in Scripture the faintest suggestion that the resurrection was new evidence for something that had, in fact, been always happening. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. I do not mean, of course, that the writers of the New Testament disbelieved in survival. On the contrary, they believed in it so readily that Jesus on more than one occasion had to assure them that he was not a ghost. From the earliest times, the Jews, like many other nations, had believed that man possessed a soul, or nephesh, separable from the body, which went at death into the shadowy world called Sheol, a land of forgetfulness and imbecility, where none called upon Jehovah anymore, a land half unreal and melancholy like the Hades of the Greeks, or the Niflheim of the Norsemen. From it, shades could return and appear to the living, as Samuel's shade had done at the command of the Witch of Endor. In much more recent times, there had arisen a more cheerful belief that the righteous passed at death to heaven. Both doctrines are doctrines of the immortality of the soul, as a Greek or a modern Englishman understands it, and both are quite irrelevant to the story of the resurrection. The writers look upon this event as an absolute novelty. Quite clearly, they do not think they have been haunted by a ghost from Sheol, nor even that they had a vision of a soul in heaven. It must be clearly understood that if the psychical researchers succeeded in proving survival and showed that the resurrection was an instance of it, they would not be supporting the Christian faith, but refuting it. If that were all that had happened, the original gospel would have been untrue. What the apostles claimed to have seen did not corroborate nor exclude, and had indeed nothing to do with, either the doctrine of heaven or the doctrine of Sheol. Insofar as it corroborated anything, it corroborated a third Jewish belief which is quite distinct from both these. This third doctrine taught that in the day of Yahweh, peace would be restored and world dominion given to Israel under a righteous king and that when this happened, the righteous dead, or some of them, would come back to earth, not as floating wraiths, but as solid men who cast shadows in the sunlight and made a noise when they tramped the floors. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, said Isaiah, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Isaiah 26:19. What the apostles thought they had seen was, if not that, at any rate, a lonely first instance of that, the first movement of a great wheel beginning to turn in the direction opposite to that which all men hitherto had observed. Of all the ideas entertained by man about death, it is this one, and this one only, which the story of the resurrection tends to confirm. If the story is false, then it is this Hebrew myth of resurrection which begot it. If the story is true, then the hint and anticipation of the truth is to be found not in popular ideas about ghosts, nor in Eastern doctrines of reincarnation, nor in philosophical speculations about the immortality of the soul, but exclusively in the Hebrew prophecies of the return, the restoration, the great reversal. Immortality, simply as immortality, is irrelevant to the Christian claim. There are, I allow, certain respects in which the risen Christ resembles the ghost of popular tradition. Like a ghost, he appears and disappears. Locked doors are no obstacle to him. On the other hand, he himself vigorously asserts that he is corporeal, Luke 24, 39, and eats boiled fish. It is at this point that the modern reader becomes uncomfortable. He becomes more uncomfortable still at the words, Don't touch me, I have not yet gone up to the Father. John 20, 17. For voices and apparitions we are in some measure prepared. But what is this that must not be touched? What is all this about going up to the Father? Is he not already with the Father in the only sense that matters? What can going up be except a metaphor for that? And if so, why has he not yet gone? These discomforts arise because the story the apostles actually had to tell begins at this point to conflict with the story we expect and are determined beforehand to read into their narrative. We expect them to tell of a risen life which is purely spiritual in the negative sense of that word. 
That is, we use the word spiritual to mean not what it is, but what it is not. We mean a life without space, without history, without environment, with no sensuous elements in it. We also, in our heart of hearts, tend to slur over the risen manhood of Jesus to conceive him, after death, simply returning into deity, so that the resurrection would be no more than the reversal or undoing of the Incarnation. That being so, all references to the risen body make us uneasy. They raise awkward questions. For as long as we hold the negatively spiritual view, we have not really been believing in that body at all. We have thought, whether we acknowledged it or not, that the body was not objective, that it was an appearance sent by God to assure the disciples of truths otherwise incommunicable. But what truths? If the truth is that after death there comes a negatively spiritual life, an eternity of mystical experience, what more misleading way of communicating it could possibly be found than the appearance of a human form which eats boiled fish? Again, on such a view, the body would really be a hallucination, and any theory of hallucination breaks down on the fact, and if it is an invention, it is the oddest invention that ever entered the mind of man, that on three separate occasions this hallucination was not immediately recognized as Jesus. Luke 24.13, John 20.15, and John 21.4. Even granting that God sent a holy hallucination to teach truths already widely believed without it, and far more easily taught by other methods, and certain to be completely obscured by this, might we not at least hope that he would get the face of the hallucination right? Is he who made all the faces such a bungler that he cannot even work up a recognizable likeness of the man who was himself? It is at this point that awe and trembling fall upon us as we read the records. If the story is false, it is at least a much stranger story than we expected, something for which the philosophical religion, psychical research, and popular superstition have all alike failed to prepare us. If the story is true, then a wholly new mode of being has arisen in the universe. The body which lives in that new mode is like and yet unlike the body his friends knew before the execution. It is differently related to space and probably to time, but by no means cut off from all relation to them. It can perform the animal act of eating. It is so related to matter as we know it that it can be touched, though at first it had better not be touched. It has also a history before it which is in view from the first moment of the resurrection. It is presently going to become different or go somewhere else. That is why the story of the ascension cannot be separated from that of the resurrection. All the accounts suggest that the appearances of the risen body came to an end. Some described an abrupt end about six weeks after the death. And they describe this abrupt end in a way which presents greater difficulties to the modern mind than any other part of Scripture. For here, surely, we get the implication of all those primitive crudities to which I have said that Christians are not committed, the vertical ascent like a balloon, the local heaven, the decorated chair to the right of the Father's throne. He was caught up into the sky, Uranus, says Mark's Gospel, and sat down at the right hand of God. He was lifted up, says the author of Acts, and a cloud cut him off from their sight. It is true that if we wish to get rid of these embarrassing passages, we have the means to do so. The Markan one probably formed no part of the earliest text of St. Mark's Gospel. And you may add that the ascension, though constantly implied throughout the New Testament, is described only in these two places. Can we then simply drop the ascension story? The answer is that we can do so only if we regard the resurrection appearances as those of a ghost or hallucination. For a phantom can just fade away, but an objective entity must go somewhere, something must happen to it. And if the risen body were not objective, then all of us, Christian or not, must invent some explanation for the disappearance of the corpse. And all Christians must explain why God sent or permitted a vision or ghost whose behavior seems almost exclusively directed to convincing the disciples that it was not a vision or a ghost, but a really corporeal being. If it were a vision, then it was the most systematically deceptive and lying vision on record. But if it were real, then something happened to it after it ceased to appear. You cannot take away the ascension without putting something else in its place. The records represent Christ as passing after death, as no man had passed before, neither into a purely, that is, negatively spiritual mode of existence, nor into a natural life, such as we know, 
but into a life which has its own, new nature. It represents him as withdrawing six weeks later into some different mode of existence. It says, he says, that he goes to prepare a place for us. This presumably means that he is about to create that whole new nature which will provide the environment or conditions for his glorified humanity, and in him, for ours. The picture is not what we expected, though whether it is less or more probable and philosophical on that account is another question. It is not the picture of an escape from any and every kind of nature into some unconditioned and utterly transcendent life. It is the picture of a new human nature, and a new nature in general, being brought into existence. We must indeed believe the risen body to be extremely different from the mortal body, but the existence in that new state of anything that could in any sense be described as body at all involves some sort of spatial relations, and in the long run a whole new universe. That is the picture, not of unmaking, but of remaking. The old field of space, time, matter, and the senses is to be weeded, dug, and sown for a new crop. We may be tired of that old field. God is not. And yet the very way in which this new nature begins to shine in has a certain affinity with the habits of old nature. In nature as we know her, things tend to be anticipated. Nature is fond of false dawns, of precursors. Thus, as I said before, some flowers come before true spring, sub-men, the evolutionists would have it, before the true men. So here also we get law before gospel, animal sacrifices foreshadowing the great sacrifice of God to God, the Baptist before the Messiah, and those miracles of the new creation which come before the resurrection. Christ walking on the water and his raising of Lazarus fall in this class. Both give us hints of what the new nature will be like. In the walking on the water, we see the relations of spirit and nature so altered that nature can be made to do whatever spirit pleases. This new obedience of nature is, of course, not to be separated, even in thought, from spirit's own obedience to the father of spirits. Apart from that proviso, such obedience by nature, if it were possible, would result in chaos. The evil dream of magic arises from finite spirits longing to get that power without paying that price. The evil reality of lawless applied science, which is magic's sun and air, is actually reducing large tracts of nature to disorder and sterility at this very moment. I do not know how radically nature herself would need to be altered to make her thus obedient to spirits when spirits have become wholly obedient to their source. One thing at least we must observe. If we are in fact spirits, not nature's offspring, then there must be some point, probably the brain, at which created spirit even now can produce effects on matter not by manipulation or technics, but simply by the wish to do so. If that is what you mean by magic, then magic is a reality manifested every time you move your hand or think a thought. And nature, as we have seen, is not destroyed, but rather perfected by her servitude. The raising of Lazarus differs from the resurrection of Christ himself, because Lazarus, so far as we know, was not raised to a new and more glorious mode of existence, but merely restored to the sort of life he had had before. The fitness of the miracle lies in the fact that he who will raise all men at the general resurrection here does it small and close, and in an inferior, a merely anticipatory fashion. For the mere restoration of Lazarus is as inferior in splendor to the glorious resurrection of the new humanity as stone jars are to the green and growing vine, or five little barley loaves to all the waving bronze and gold of a fat valley ripe for harvest. The resuscitation of Lazarus, so far as we can see, is simple reversal, a series of changes working in the direction opposite to that we have always experienced. At death, matter, which has been organic, begins to flow away into the inorganic, to be finely scattered and used, some of it, by other organisms. The resurrection of Lazarus involves the reverse process. The general resurrection involves the reverse process universalized, a rush of matter towards organization at the call of spirits which require it. It is presumably a foolish fancy, not justified by the words of Scripture, that each spirit should recover those particular units of matter which he ruled before. For one thing, they would not be enough to go round. We all live in second-hand suits, and there are doubtless atoms in my chin which have served many another man, many a dog, many an eel, many a dinosaur, nor does the unity of our bodies, even in this present life, consist in retaining the same particles. 
My form remains one, though the matter in it changes continually. I am, in that respect, like a curve in a waterfall. But the miracle of Lazarus, though only anticipatory in one sense, belongs emphatically to the new creation, for nothing is more definitely excluded by old nature than any return to a status quo. The pattern of death and rebirth never restores the previous individual organism. And similarly, on the inorganic level, we are told that nature never restores order where disorder has once occurred. Shuffling, said Professor Eddington, is the thing nature never undoes. Hence we live in a universe where organisms are always getting more disordered. These laws between them, irreversible death and irreversible entropy, cover almost the whole of what St. Paul calls the vanity of nature, her futility, her ruinousness. And the film is never reversed. The movement from more order to less almost serves to determine the direction in which time is flowing. You could almost define the future as the period in which what is now living will be dead, and in which what order still remains will be diminished. But entropy, by its very character, assures us that though it may be the universal rule in the nature we know, it cannot be universal absolutely. If a man says, Humpty Dumpty is falling, you see at once that this is not a complete story. The bit you have been told implies both a later chapter in which Humpty Dumpty will have reached the ground, and an earlier chapter in which he was still seated on the wall. A nature which is running down cannot be the whole story. A clock can't run down unless it has been wound up. Humpty Dumpty can't fall off a wall which never existed. If a nature which disintegrates order were the whole of reality, where would she find any order to disintegrate? Thus, on any view, there must have been a time when processes the reverse of those we now see were going on, a time of winding up. The Christian claim is that those days are not gone forever. Humpty Dumpty is going to be replaced on the wall, at least in the sense that what has died is going to recover life, probably in the sense that the inorganic universe is going to be reordered. Either Humpty Dumpty will never reach the ground, being caught in midfall by the everlasting arms, or else when he reaches it, he will be put together again and replaced on a new and better wall. Admittedly, science discerns no king's horses and men who can put Humpty Dumpty together again. But you would not expect her to. She is based on observation, and all our observations are observations of Humpty Dumpty in midair. They do not reach either the wall above or the ground below, much less the king with his horses and men hastening towards the spot. The transfiguration or metamorphosis of Jesus is also, no doubt, an anticipatory glimpse of something to come. He is seen conversing with two of the ancient dead. The change which his own human form had undergone is described as one to luminosity, to shining whiteness. A similar whiteness characterizes his appearance at the beginning of the book of Revelation. One rather curious detail is that this shining or whiteness affected his clothes as much as his body. St. Mark indeed mentions the clothes more explicitly than the face, and adds with his inimitable naivety that no laundry could do anything like it. Taken by itself, this episode bears all the marks of a vision, that is, of an experience which, though it may be divinely sent and may reveal great truth, yet is not, objectively speaking, the experience it seems to be. But if the theory of vision, or holy hallucination, will not cover the resurrection appearances, it would be only a multiplying of hypotheses to introduce it here. We do not know to what phase or feature of the new creation this episode points. It may reveal some special glorifying of Christ's manhood at some phase of its history, since history it apparently has, or it may reveal the glory which that manhood always has in its new creation. It may even reveal a glory which all risen men will inherit. We do not know. It must indeed be emphasized throughout that we know and can know very little about the new nature. The task of the imagination here is not to forecast it, but simply, by brooding on many possibilities, to make room for a more complete and circumspect agnosticism. It is useful to remember that even now, senses responsive to different vibrations would admit us to quite new worlds of experience, that a multidimensional space would be different, almost beyond recognition, from the space we are now aware of, yet not discontinuous from it, that time may not always be for us as it now is, unilinear and irreversible, 
that other parts of nature might someday obey us as our cortex now does. It is useful not because we can trust these fancies to give us any positive truths about the new creation, but because they teach us not to limit, in our rashness, the vigor and variety of the new crops which this old field might yet produce. We are therefore compelled to believe that nearly all we are told about the new creation is metaphorical, but not quite all. That is just where the story of the resurrection suddenly jerks us back like a tether. The local appearances, the eating, the touching, the claim to be corporeal, must be either reality or sheer illusion. The new nature is, in the most troublesome way, interlocked at some points with the old. Because of its novelty, we have to think of it, for the most part, metaphorically. But because of the partial interlocking, some facts about it come through into our present experience in all their literal facthood, just as some facts about an organism are inorganic facts, and some facts about a solid body are facts of linear geometry. Even apart from that, the mere idea of a new nature, a nature beyond nature, a systematic and diversified reality which is supernatural in relation to the world of our five present senses, but natural from its own point of view, is profoundly shocking to a certain philosophical preconception from which we all suffer. I think Kant is at the root of it. It may be expressed by saying that we are prepared to believe either in a reality with one floor or in a reality with two floors, but not in a reality like a skyscraper with several floors. We are prepared, on the one hand, for the sort of reality that naturalists believe in. That is a one-floor reality. This present nature is all there is. We are also prepared for reality as religion conceives it, a reality with a ground floor, nature, and then above that, one other floor and one only, an eternal, spaceless, timeless, spiritual something of which we can have no images and which, if it presents itself to human consciousness at all, does so in a mystical experience which shatters all our categories of thought. What we are not prepared for is anything in between. We feel quite sure that the first step beyond the world of our present experiences must lead either nowhere at all or else into the blinding abyss of undifferentiated spirituality, the unconditioned, the absolute. That is why many believe in God who cannot believe in angels and an angelic world. That is why many believe in immortality who cannot believe in the resurrection of the body. That is why pantheism is more popular than Christianity and why many desire a Christianity stripped of its miracles. I cannot now understand, but I well remember, the passionate conviction with which I myself once defended this prejudice. Any rumor of floors or levels intermediate between the unconditioned and the world revealed by our present senses I rejected without trial as mythology. Yet it is very difficult to see any rational grounds for the dogma that reality must have no more than two levels. There cannot, from the nature of the case, be evidence that God never created and never will create more than one system. Each of them would be at least extra-natural in relation to all the others, and if any of them is more concrete, more permanent, more excellent, and richer than another, it will be to that other supernatural. Nor will a partial contact between any two obliterate their distinctness. In that way there might be natures piled upon natures to any height God pleased, each supernatural to that below it and subnatural to that which surpassed it. But the tenor of Christian teaching is that we are actually living in a situation even more complex than that. A new nature is being not merely made, but made out of an old one. We live amid all the anomalies, inconveniences, hopes, and excitements of a house that is being rebuilt. Something is being pulled down, and something going up in its place. To accept the idea of intermediate floors, which the Christian story will quite simply force us to do if it is not a falsehood, does not, of course, involve losing our spiritual apprehension of the top floor of all. Most certainly, beyond all worlds, unconditioned and unimaginable, transcending discursive thought, there yawns forever the ultimate fact, the fountain of all other facthood, the burning and undimensioned depth of the divine life. Most certainly also, to be united with that life in the eternal sonship of Christ is, strictly speaking, the only thing worth a moment's consideration. And insofar as that is what you mean by heaven, Christ's divine nature never left it, and therefore never returned to it, and his human nature ascended thither not at the moment of the ascension, but at every moment. 
In that sense, not one word that the spiritualizers have uttered will, please God, ever be unsaid by me. But it by no means follows that there are not other truths as well. I allow, indeed I insist, that Christ cannot be at the right hand of God except in a metaphorical sense. I allow and insist that the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, can never be, nor have been, confined to any place at all. It is rather in him that all places exist. But the records say that the glorified, but still in some sense corporeal Christ, withdrew into some different mode of being about six weeks after the crucifixion, and that he is preparing a place for us. The statement in St. Mark that he sat down at the right hand of God, we must take as a metaphor. It was indeed, even for the writer, a poetical quotation from Psalm 110. But the statement that the holy shape went up and vanished does not permit the same treatment. What troubles us here is not simply the statement itself, but what, we feel sure, the author meant by it. Granted that there are different natures, different levels of being, distinct but not always discontinuous, granted that Christ withdrew from one of these to another, that his withdrawal from one was indeed the first step in his creation of the other, what precisely should we expect the onlookers to see? Perhaps mere instantaneous vanishing would make us most comfortable. A sudden break between the perceptible and the imperceptible would worry us less than any kind of joint. But if the spectators say they saw first a short vertical movement and then a vague luminosity, that is what cloud presumably means here, as it certainly does in the account of the transfiguration, and then nothing, have we any reason to object? We are well aware that increased distance from the center of this planet could not in itself be equated with increase of power or beatitude, but this is only saying that if the movement had no connection with such spiritual events, why then it had no connection with them. Movement in any direction but one, away from the position momentarily occupied by our moving earth, will certainly be to us movement upwards. To say that Christ's passage to a new nature could involve no such movement, or no movement at all, within the nature he was leaving, is very arbitrary. Where there is passage, there is departure, and departure is an event in the region from which the traveler is departing. All this, even on the assumption that the ascending Christ is in a three-dimensional space. If it is not that kind of body, and space is not that kind of space, then we are even less qualified to say what the spectators of this entirely new event might or might not see or feel as if they had seen. There is, of course, no question of a human body as we know it existing in interstellar space as we know it. The ascension belongs to a new nature. We are discussing only what the joint between the old nature and the new, the precise moment of transition, would look like. But what really worries us is the conviction that, whatever we say, the New Testament writers meant something quite different. We feel sure that they thought they had seen their master setting off on a journey for a local heaven where God sat in a throne and where there was another throne waiting for him. And I believe that in a sense that is just what they did think. And I believe that for this reason, whatever they had actually seen, sense perception almost by hypothesis would be confused at such a moment, they would almost certainly have remembered it as a vertical movement. What we must not say is that they mistook local heavens and celestial throne rooms and the like for the spiritual heaven of union with God and supreme power and beatitude. You and I have been gradually disentangling different senses of the word heaven throughout this chapter. It may be convenient here to make a list. Heaven can mean, one, the unconditioned divine life beyond all worlds, two, blessed participation in that life by a created spirit, three, the whole nature or system of conditions in which redeemed human spirits, still remaining human, can enjoy such participation fully and forever. This is the heaven Christ goes to prepare for us. Four, the physical heaven, the sky, the space in which earth moves. What enables us to distinguish these senses and hold them clearly apart is not any special spiritual purity, but the fact that we are the heirs to centuries of logical analysis. Not that we are sons to Abraham, but that we are sons to Aristotle. We are not to suppose that the writers of the New Testament mistook heaven in sense 4 or 3 for heaven in sense 2 or 1. You cannot mistake a half-sovereign for a sixpence until you know the English system of coinage, that is, until you know the difference between them. 
In their idea of heaven, all these meanings were latent, ready to be brought out by later analysis. They never thought merely of the blue sky or merely of a spiritual heaven. When they looked up at the blue sky, they never doubted that there, whence light and heat and the precious rain descended, was the home of God. But on the other hand, when they thought of one ascending to that heaven, they never doubted he was ascending in what we should call a spiritual sense. The real and pernicious period of literalism comes far later, in the Middle Ages and the 17th century, when the distinctions have been made and heavy-handed people try to force the separated concepts together again in wrong ways. The fact that Galilean shepherds could not distinguish what they saw at the ascension from that kind of ascent which, by its very nature, could never be seen at all, does not prove on the one hand that they were unspiritual, nor on the other that they saw nothing. A man who really believes that heaven is in the sky may well, in his heart, have a far truer and more spiritual conception of it than many a modern logician who could expose that fallacy with a few strokes of his pen. For he who does the will of the Father shall know the doctrine. Irrelevant material splendors in such a man's idea of the vision of God will do no harm, for they are not there for their own sakes. Purity from such images in a merely theoretical Christian's idea will do no good if they have been banished only by logical criticism. But we must go a little further than this. It is not an accident that simple-minded people, however spiritual, should blend the ideas of God and heaven and the blue sky. It is a fact, not a fiction, that light and life-giving heat do come down from sky to earth. The analogy of the sky's role to beginning and of the earth's role to bearing is sound as far as it goes. The huge dome of the sky is of all things sensuously perceived the most like infinity. And when God made space and worlds that move in space and clothed our world with air and gave us such eyes and such imaginations as those we have, he knew what the sky would mean to us. And since nothing in his work is accidental, if he knew, he intended. We cannot be certain that this was not indeed one of the chief purposes for which nature was created, still less that it was not one of the chief reasons why the withdrawal was allowed to affect human senses as a movement upwards. A disappearance into the earth would beget a wholly different religion. The ancients, in letting the spiritual symbolism of the sky flow straight into their minds without stopping to discover by analysis that it was a symbol, were not entirely mistaken. In one way, they were perhaps less mistaken than we. For we have fallen into an opposite difficulty. Let us confess that probably every Christian now alive finds a difficulty in reconciling the two things he has been told about heaven, that it is, on the one hand, a life in Christ, a vision of God, a ceaseless adoration, and that it is, on the other hand, a bodily life. When we seem nearest to the vision of God in this life, the body seems almost in irrelevance. And if we try to conceive our eternal life as one in a body, any kind of body, we tend to find that some vague dream of Platonic paradises and gardens of the Hesperides has substituted itself for that mystical approach which we feel, and I think rightly, to be more important. But if that discrepancy were final, then it would follow, which is absurd, that God was originally mistaken when he introduced our spirits into the natural order at all. We must conclude that the discrepancy itself is precisely one of the disorders which the new creation comes to heal. The fact that the body, and locality, and locomotion, and time now feel irrelevant to the highest reaches of the spiritual life is, like the fact that we can think of our bodies as coarse, a symptom. Spirit and nature have quarreled in us. That is our disease. Nothing we can yet do enables us to imagine its complete healing. Some glimpses and faint hints we have, in the sacraments, in the use made of sensuous imagery by the great poets, in the best instances of sexual love, in our experiences of the earth's beauty. But the full healing is utterly beyond our present conceptions. Mystics have got as far in contemplation of God as the point at which the senses are banished. The further point, at which they will be put back again, has, to the best of my knowledge, been reached by no one. The destiny of redeemed man is not less but more unimaginable than mysticism would lead us to suppose, because it is full of semi-imaginables which we cannot at present admit without destroying its essential character. One point must be touched on because, though I kept silence, it would nonetheless be present in most readers' minds. The letter and spirit of Scripture, and of all Christianity, forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. 
and this reduces our imagination to the withering alternative either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, or else of a perpetual fast. As regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate, he does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which, in heaven, will leave no room for it. Hence, where fullness awaits us, we anticipate fasting. In denying that sexual life, as we now understand it, makes any part of the final beatitude, it is not, of course, necessary to suppose that the distinction of sexes will disappear. What is no longer needed for biological purposes may be expected to survive for splendor. Sexuality is the instrument both of virginity and of conjugal virtue. Neither men nor women will be asked to throw away weapons they have used victoriously. It is the beaten and the fugitives who throw away their swords. The conquerors sheathe theirs and retain them. I am well aware that this last paragraph may seem to many readers unfortunate, and to some comic. But that very comedy, as I must repeatedly insist, is the symptom of our estrangement, as spirits, from nature, and our estrangement, as animals, from spirit. The whole conception of the new creation involves the belief that this estrangement will be healed. A curious consequence will follow. The archaic type of thought, which could not clearly distinguish spiritual heaven from the sky, is, from our point of view, a confused type of thought. But it also resembles and anticipates a type of thought which will one day be true. That archaic sort of thinking will become simply the correct sort when nature and spirit are fully harmonized, when spirit rides nature so perfectly that the two together make rather a centaur than a mounted knight. I do not mean necessarily that the blending of heaven and sky in particular will turn out to be specially true, but that that kind of blending will accurately mirror the reality which will then exist. There will be no room to get the finest razor blade of thought in between spirit and nature. Every state of affairs in the new nature will be the perfect expression of a spiritual state, and every spiritual state the perfect informing of and bloom upon a state of affairs, one with it as the perfume with the flower, or the spirit of great poetry with its form. There is thus in the history of human thought, as elsewhere, a pattern of death and rebirth. The old, richly imaginative thought which still survives in Plato has to submit to the death-like but indispensable process of logical analysis. Nature and spirit, matter and mind, fact and myth, the literal and the metaphorical, have to be more and more sharply separated, till at last a purely mathematical universe and a purely subjective mind confront one another across an unbridgeable chasm. But from this descent also, if thought itself is to survive, there must be reascent, and the Christian conception provides for it. Those who attain the glorious resurrection will see the dry bones clothed again with flesh, the fact and the myth remarried, the literal and the metaphorical rushing together. The remark so often made that heaven is a state of mind bears witness to the wintry and death-like phase of this process in which we are now living. The implication is that if heaven is a state of mind, or more correctly of the spirit, then it must be only a state of the spirit, or at least that anything else, if added to that state of spirit, would be irrelevant. That is what every great religion except Christianity would say. But Christian teaching, by saying that God made the world and called it good, teaches that nature or environment cannot be simply irrelevant to spiritual beatitude in general, however far in one particular nature, during the days of her bondage, they may have drawn apart. By teaching the resurrection of the body, it teaches that heaven is not merely a state of the spirit, but a state of the body as well, and therefore a state of nature as a whole. Christ, it is true, told his bearers that the kingdom of heaven was within or among them, but his hearers were not merely in a state of mind. The planet he had created was beneath their feet, his sun above their heads, blood and lungs and guts were working in the bodies he had invented, photons and sound waves of his devising were blessing them with the sight of his human face and the sound of his voice. 
we are never merely in a state of mind. The prayer and the meditation made in howling wind or quiet sunshine, in morning alacrity or evening resignation, in youth or age, good health or ill, may be equally, but are differently, blessed. Already in this present life we have all seen how God can take up all these seeming irrelevancies into the spiritual fact and cause them to bear no small part in making the blessing of that moment to be the particular blessing it was, as fire can burn coal and wood equally, but a wood fire is different from a coal one. From this factor of environment, Christianity does not teach us to desire a total release. We desire, like St. Paul, not to be unclothed, but to be reclothed, to find not the formless everywhere and nowhere, but the promised land, that nature which will be always and perfectly, as present nature is partially and intermittently, the instrument for that music which will then arise between Christ and us. And what, you ask, does it matter? Do not such ideas only excite us and distract us from the more immediate and more certain things, the love of God and our neighbors, the bearing of the daily cross? If you find that they so distract you, think of them no more. I most fully allow that it is of more importance for you or me today to refrain from one sneer or to extend one charitable thought to an enemy than to know all that angels and archangels know about the mysteries of the new creation. I write of these things not because they are the most important, but because this book is about miracles. From the title, you cannot have expected a book of devotion or of ascetic theology. Yet I will not admit that the things we have been discussing for the last few pages are of no importance for the practice of the Christian life. For I suspect that our conception of heaven as merely a state of mind is not unconnected with the fact that the specifically Christian virtue of hope has in our time grown so languid. Where our fathers, peering into the future, saw gleams of gold, we see only the mist, white, featureless, cold, and never moving. The thought at the back of all this negative spirituality is really one forbidden to Christians. They, of all men, must not conceive spiritual joy and worth as things that need to be rescued or tenderly protected from time and place and matter in the senses. Their God is the God of corn and oil and wine. He is the glad creator. He has become himself incarnate. The sacraments have been instituted. Certain spiritual gifts are offered us only on condition that we perform certain bodily acts. After that, we cannot really be in doubt of his intention. To shrink back from all that can be called nature into negative spirituality is as if we ran away from horses instead of learning to ride. There is in our present pilgrim condition plenty of room, more room than most of us like, for abstinence and renunciation and mortifying our natural desires. But behind all asceticism, the thought should be, who will trust us with the true wealth if we cannot be trusted even with the wealth that perishes? Who will trust me with a spiritual body if I cannot control even an earthly body? These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. We must learn the manage, not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback, confident and rejoicing. Those greater mounts, those winged, shining and world-shaking horses which perhaps even now expect us with impatience, pawing and snorting in the king's stables. Not that the gallop would be of any value unless it were a gallop with the king, but how else, since he has retained his own charger, should we accompany him? Chapter 17. Epilogue. If you leave a thing alone, you leave it to a torrent of change. If you leave a white post alone, it will soon be a black post. Chesterton, Orthodoxy. My work ends here. If, after reading it, you now turn to study the historical evidence for yourself, begin with the New Testament and not with books about it. If you do not know Greek, get it in a modern translation. Moffat's is probably the best. Monsignor Knox is also good. I do not advise the basic English version. And when you turn from the New Testament to modern scholars, remember that you go among them as a sheep among wolves. Naturalistic assumptions, beggings of the question, such as that which I noted to the first page of this book, will meet you on every side, even from the pens of clergymen. This does not mean, as I once was tempted to suspect, that these clergymen are disguised apostates who deliberately exploit the position and the livelihood given them by the Christian Church to undermine Christianity. 
It comes partly from what we may call a hangover. We all have naturalism in our bones, and even conversion does not at once work the infection out of our system. Its assumptions rush back upon the mind the moment vigilance is relaxed. And, in part, the procedure of these scholars arises from the feeling which is greatly to their credit, which indeed is honorable to the point of being quixotic. They are anxious to allow to the enemy every advantage he can with any show of fairness claim. They thus make it part of their method to eliminate the supernatural wherever it is even remotely possible to do so, to strain natural explanation even to the breaking point before they admit the least suggestion of miracle. Just in the same spirit, some examiners tend to overmark any candidate whose opinion and character, as revealed by his work, are revolting to them. We are so afraid of being led into unfairness by our instant dislike of the man that we are liable to overshoot the mark and treat him too kindly. Many modern Christian scholars overshoot the mark for a similar reason. In using the books of such people, you must therefore be continually on guard. You must develop a nose like a bloodhound for those steps in the argument which depend not on historical and linguistic knowledge, but on the concealed assumption that miracles are impossible, improbable, or improper. And this means that you must really re-educate yourself, must work hard and consistently to eradicate from your mind the whole type of thought in which we have all been brought up. It is the type of thought which, under various disguises, has been our adversary throughout this book. It is technically called monism, but perhaps the unlearned reader will understand me best if I call it everythingism. I mean by this the belief that everything, or the whole show, must be self-existent, must be more important than every particular thing, and must contain all particular things in such a way that they cannot be really very different from one another, that they must be not merely at one, but one. Thus the everythingist, if he starts from God, becomes a pantheist. There must be nothing that is not God. If he starts from nature, he becomes a naturalist. There must be nothing that is not nature. He thinks that everything is, in the long run, merely a precursor, or a development, or a relic, or an instance, or a disguise of everything else. This philosophy I believe to be profoundly untrue. One of the moderns has said that reality is incorrigibly plural. I think he is right. All things come from one. All things are related, related and different in complicated ways, but all things are not one. The word everything should mean simply the total, a total to be reached if we knew enough by enumeration, of all the things that exist at a given moment. It must not be given a mental capital letter, must not, under the influence of picture thinking, be turned into a sort of pool in which particular things sink, or even a cake in which they are the currents. Real things are sharp and knobbly and complicated and different. Everythingism is congenial to our minds because it is the natural philosophy of a totalitarian, mass-producing, conscripted age. That is why we must be perpetually on our guard against it. And yet, and yet, it is that and yet which I fear more than any positive argument against miracles. That soft, tidal return of your habitual outlook as you close the book and the familiar four walls about you and the familiar noises from the street reassert themselves. Perhaps, if I dare suppose so much, you have been led on at times while you were reading, have felt ancient hopes and fears astir in your heart, have perhaps come almost to the threshold of belief. But now? No, it just won't do. Here is the ordinary, here is the, quote, real world, round you again. The dream is ending, as all other similar dreams have always ended. For, of course, this is not the first time such a thing has happened. More than once in your life before this you have heard a strange story, read some odd book, seen something queer, or imagined you have seen it, entertained some wild hope or terror, but always it ended in the same way, and always you wondered how you could, even for a moment, have expected it not to. For that real world, when you came back to it, is so unanswerable. Of course the strange story was false. Of course the voice was really subjective. Of course the apparent portent was a coincidence. You are ashamed of yourself for having ever thought otherwise. Ashamed, relieved, amused, disappointed, and angry all at once. You ought to have known that, as Arnold says, miracles don't happen. About this state of mind, I have just two things to say. First, that it is precisely one of those counterattacks by nature which, on my theory, you ought to have anticipated. 
Your rational thinking has no foothold in your merely natural consciousness except what it wins and maintains by conquest. The moment rational thought ceases, imagination, mental habit, temperament, and the spirit of the age take charge of you again. New thoughts, until they have themselves become habitual, will affect your consciousness as a whole only while you are actually thinking them. Reason has but to nod at his post, and instantly nature's patrols are infiltrating. Therefore, while counter-arguments against miracle are to be given full attention, for if I am wrong, then the sooner I am refuted, the better, not only for you but for me, the mere gravitation of the mind back to its habitual outlook must be discounted. Not only in this inquiry, but in every inquiry. That same familiar room, reasserting itself as one closes the book, can make other things feel incredible besides miracles. Whether the book has been telling you that the end of all civilization is at hand, that you are kept in your chair by the curvature of space, or even that you are upside down in relation to Australia, it may still seem a little unreal as you yawn and think of going to bed. I have found even a simple truth, for example that my hand, this hand now resting on the book, will one day be a skeleton's hand, singularly unconvincing at such a moment. Belief feelings, as Dr. Richards calls them, do not follow reason except by long training. They follow nature, follow the grooves and ruts which already exist in the mind. The firmest theoretical conviction in favor of materialism will not prevent a particular kind of man under certain conditions from being afraid of ghosts. The firmest theoretical conviction in favor of miracles will not prevent another kind of man, in other conditions, from feeling a heavy, inescapable certainty that no miracle can ever occur. But the feelings of a tired and nervous man, unexpectedly reduced to passing a night in a large, empty country house at the end of a journey on which he has been reading a ghost story, are no evidence that ghosts exist. Your feelings at this moment are no evidence that miracles do not occur. The second thing is this. You are probably quite right in thinking that you will never see a miracle done. You are probably equally right in thinking that there was a natural explanation of anything in your past life which seemed, at the first glance, to be rum or odd. God does not shake miracles into nature at random as if from a pepper caster. They come on great occasions. They are found at the great ganglions of history, not of political or social history, but of that spiritual history which cannot be fully known by men. If your life does not happen to be near one of those great ganglions, how should you expect to see one? If we were heroic missionaries, apostles, or martyrs, it would be a different matter. But why you or I? Unless you live near a railway, you will not see trains go past your windows. How likely is it that you or I will be present when a peace treaty is signed, when a great scientific discovery is made, when a dictator commits suicide? That we should see a miracle is even less likely. Nor, if we understand, shall we be anxious to do so. Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. Miracles and martyrdoms tend to bunch about the same areas of history, areas we have naturally no wish to frequent. Do not, I earnestly advise you, demand an ocular proof unless you are already perfectly certain that it is not forthcoming.